I can be the smartest person in the world and know every single aspect of the project and continue to learn for that. And I will burn out. The better option is to utilize those around you, whether it's a community, there are people that are smarter than you that can teach you faster. You gain efficiencies. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 128. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. My name is Shannon Kennedy, and I'm here, as always, with Benny Lewis. And in this episode, we're talking to one of the Fluent in Three Months Challenge participants, Greg, who learned Czech with us. So before we dive into your experience with the challenge, can you let us know what kind of got you into language learning and what your learning looked like prior to joining the challenge? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My language journey started uh, growing up in California, Uh, fortunate enough to grow up in an area that had a large Hispanic speaking population. So that was something I was exposed to early on, you know, grade school, starting to meet folks from other places, other cultures, and then the typical sort of high school Spanish, right? You know, study from the textbook, all these things that going into, uh, sorry, that was grade school. Going into high school, uh, I switched over to Latin because it didn't have a speaking requirement. So I could get my work done and just do the other things I was interested in. And then in college, switched again, took a semester of Japanese just to see what it was like, something different. And after college, went over to the Czech Republic for two years, uh, taught English as a second language over there uh, from early 20s. And we did a reunion uh, this past couple of weeks. And I figured why not sort of reactivate things and learn Czech and, you know, a little bit of a broad spectrum, but that's the quick and easy background of most language I've studied and, you know, some of the main ones and how I got to where I am today. Yeah, that's quite the the mixture of languages you've got there. I know when a lot of people uh, think about some of these languages, especially Czech, and I know I got this impression when I dived, uh, g- gave the language just a, a little bit of um, a whirl of, a while back, that a lot of people think it's like one of the hardest languages and like, how do you deal with this like, what was your impression of uh, the likes of Czech? Did you find it to be as difficult as people say it w- was, or were you able to change your attitude about it based on your experience? Yeah, I think it it's difficult depending on where you start, right? If it's only English, you know, because of some of the grammatical constructions, right? It's different logic, different rules, and, um, you know, things like cases that in English, we do have them to a very small extent, and there it's to very large. So, you know what you want to say, but you have to say it in a certain way that that's what makes it difficult. But, you know, for me, it's a different puzzle, right? You're trying to figure out how the pieces interlock in that sense, that there are rules to English. We just internally know them from growing up that now you have to learn an external set of rules that, you know, where verbs can go, where adjectives can go, how endings change that, you know, it's unfamiliar and it can feel like you're sort of working your way through a jungle, but there is a way through and you mentioned the attitude for any language that you know from my perspective however many people have learned that language it's doable right and so one of the things i enjoyed about the challenge is when i did this 15 years ago learning check that sort of that perfectionism trying to get the sounds perfect and then you know stopping myself short because it wasn't perfect this time around i said i'm not going to aim for perfection i'm going to aim for comprehension right and really sort of 
there's a specific check sound and my actual check name has two of them and I can't say it, right? And it's a reminder that there are some checks that can't say this sound. It's a, like a je, and I'm not saying that right, but it's basically one rolled R followed by a ZH. And it's very unique to check and you find those pieces. But if my attitude is I can never get it right, then I'm never going to start versus I can get enough and take that component that absolutely it's difficult, but it's not, you know, an impossible task. You just have to kind of find those pieces to start from and just build and build and build uh, from the foundation. So you had said that while doing the challenge, you spoke more Czech than you did while living in the Czech Republic. Can you talk a little bit more about that in depth? I think it was more the consistency, right? You know, whether it was five times a week or not even hitting that sometimes, but that level of trying to articulate things. Because when I would speak Czech in the Czech Republic, I was very often with friends that spoke English as, you know, a primary second language. And for them, they like to be able to speak it for themselves. That it was harder at the time in 2007, 2009. You know, we joked around that we took a picture at a place we frequented. It's like the last time we took this picture, I think it was on a Nokia phone where we were, you know, trying to figure out who's going to text who because text messages uh, cost five cents each at that time, which sounds like a small amount, but it could add up. And with that, you're speaking to people that you're comfortable with. You're not really pushing that envelope, but you're trying to find ways to speak Czech that the facility and the technology that's there. My tutor is Czech, but he lives in Cambodia and he has a lot of shared experiences that that was not possible 15 years ago. So it opened up the gates to be able to have consistent, durable interaction versus, hey, we got a couple sentences, then, you know, just fell apart because the other person said, eh, I can't talk to this guy because he doesn't quite know what's going on. And what brought you to the uh, Flute in Three Months Challenge in particular? I think I've probably, I couldn't even imagine when I found your blog way back when, but sort of that aspect of, you know, taking on a short-term challenge for something. And I think I did an add one challenge way back when, uh, I think for Spanish, if I'm not mistaken, that it was always sort of the back of my mind. And when this trip came about, it said, you know, the time is going to pass anyway. Why not take a run at it? Why not surprise some of your friends that that's sort of the other shift that the purpose when I was doing it the first time learning in country, it was to connect to people and have a richer experience. But now it was more sort of not just that, but personal fulfillment to take on something unique, something challenging, but with that end goal in mind to see that sort of surprise on some of my friends' faces to say, one of the things that Tudor and I talked about is that whenever you find somebody that speaks English as a second language, they've made an enormous time and you know, often a money investment that to assume that that is just, okay, you've taken all the burden, you've made my life easy, is almost disingenuous in some sense. So if I can take some time that, hey, I'm trying to learn your language, I'm not going to be perfect. That's a happy moment that I will take for the next 20, 30 years, because we can laugh about some of those same things. And it's to me, it's more valuable than, oh, I saw this really cool thing in a museum. So that was basically driving me through and helping keep me motivated uh, through the good days, through the average days, and the what I like to call the blah days. You have used a lot of different systems, and I'd like to talk about some of them in this podcast. But the first one, because in one of your previous answers, you just mess it, uh, mentioned consistency and how important it was to you this time around learning Czech. And one of the things that you had mentioned doing in the challenge was using like your calendar and your to-do list um, to kind of keep track of how you were studying. Can you talk a little bit more about the system and why it was so effective for you? I think it was more awareness what was effective. 
right? When I first did this, it was kind of everything was ad hoc. You're just, oh, I have a chance to speak to this person versus if I'm making time for it, it allows me to slot where things should be prioritized that um, part of the to-do list, if I have six things to do and one of those is my check lesson, then I'm going to do it, right? That if there were 10 things I could have done, those get pushed to another time that there's no consequence for that. Historically, you know, and I see this for myself and others who learn language, when you don't have that investment, whether it's paying for the challenge or paying for a tutor or something like that, it's very easy to drop because, oh, the book's on the shelf, the book's not complaining, <laughs> right? And so when I started putting it on to-do list, I found that the f- consistency was better. It helped me maintain because there were some days where work was just completely nuts. The previous day was very stressful and that became an escape valve or it's a really good day and it became a cherry on top. So either way it was on the list that from there I could figure out when it was most effective that I would try to study in the afternoon originally. And I discovered pretty quick, if I didn't get my morning lesson in, I was much less likely to do it. I would not have had that awareness, you know, 15 years ago in my language learning to say, oh, this is a better time for me. I can shift things and prioritize and deprioritize because the old adage, if everything is a priority, nothing's a priority. So start with those six and say, okay, this is going to get done. There were days where on occasion I didn't do it, but then it became the top of the list the next day and it was done. And it felt that much better because for me, I'm certainly, I don't know if it's a correct term, a completionist. But when I complete that list, it feels really good. And then now I'm looking forward to the next thing. So lists being one aspect of uh, your um, kind of completionist attitude that's helped you in language learning. But like since you've had the project, um, like you said, 15 years ago, and you've had a, a kind of renewal version of the project now, what other things do you feel have changed in your learning process? Because obviously the big one is that you've use this online learning resource through teacher, through the challenge. But what other uh, tools and resources have you found exist now that didn't exist then that have given you a bit of a boost? Uh, Italki is definitely the big one, right? I couldn't tell you if it was around 15 years ago, but the ability to connect with different folks that, you know, it's the classic, as I mentioned in middle school, was, hey, here's a textbook, we're going to read through it, and it's very little speaking, right? And I'm sure that that is still there, but what I've liked now is being able to redefine the norms, right? And I know Benny, you're an engineer, same as me, that your frame of reference, right? I could sit there and say, I have a long way to go, or I'm much that, that much farther from the beginning, that that helps first and foremost. So some of the other things that are out there that, oh, I can speak with a person, I can put some content online, that the other one that I've found very useful as of late is YouTube, right? You know, finding some targeted things that, there are some guides in Prague where, you know, the content's already familiar and then they have an English version and a Czech version. They have teachers that are putting their own content out there in the bite-sized chunks that weren't readily available 15 years ago, at least for me to say the best option was to go to a classroom for 60 minutes, but 30 minutes in, if I'm tired, then that's not the best uh, second 30 minutes versus, oh, I've got a few minutes. I have some energy. I will do five to 10 minutes and look at this particular video it was more interaction with the language to the point that not just speaking more, but having it more at a forefront when e- before it was much easier to push it away, just keeping it right in front and center. You're just chipping away, making that much more progress. So I think YouTube is a big one. Italki is another. And then um, I forget the name of the app. It might be hello talk, but basically text other people. Whereas before we would do it 
um, in a restaurant, in a bar, wherever we were going, but on paper. And this way, it's, I can look back and look at other things that I like to remind people that people learn languages before technology. They learned in a very specific way. Technology just streamlines a lot of it. <clears throat> it doesn't really make anything earth shattering because it's just basic communication. The tools are different. The tools are improved, but the structure and the approach generally remains the same, provided you put in the so one of the ways that I know that you've used technology, um, given that you tend to be more visually inclined with your learning, is a language topics folder on your phone. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you use it? Absolutely. And this came to me when I was working with a tutor to say, hey, I wanted to show off my, I have two new nephews, I have a new niece, so the family is growing. And I wanted to be able to speak to that, some of those common components that, you know, for whatever reason, it clicked like a picture is worth a thousand words to show him. Then he started saying a lot of adjectives, like, you know, what a beautiful nephew you have, your family must be growing. And instead of trying to search through all my photos for like a specific trip, I just started tagging some of them and just put them into its own folder that for the things I was interested, whether it was check culture, check food, it made it a much easier conversation. Like, oh, can I show you my family? And it wasn't a, let me stop and look something up. It's part of the conversation in a way before I would try to be very sort of rigid and um, not try to use the phone to have a natural interaction. But then I realized, wait, we use our phones in this way. Why, why am I saying this is not a normal thing to do, right? Redefine the norms in the frame of reference. So whether it's family, whether it's places I've been or previous photos, right? It gave us a common place to start from because people could react to things and it became a measure that, that's one of the other changes. Conversations before always felt like an interview where people wanted to ask me a lot of questions and I'm on the defensive. Now it's a much more even playing field to say, I'm going to put this conversation to you and ask about your family because we've already established the common frame point that that made it simpler for me. And that's where I started to make some really big gains, probably about halfway to two thirds of the way through the challenge. And you were saying that one of your goals at the end of the challenge was to potentially surprise your friends. Were you able to do that? And what were the results you found at the end of the challenge? Very much surprised them. Um, it was nice because like, here's this YouTube link of me speaking in an hour. And they're like, you never spoke this much when you were here. And so I sent it to them. I'm like, you'll laugh at some of the pronunciation, like that's okay. But to a person, they said, we appreciate that you made the effort, right? We still spoke in English most of the time, but they could sense that if we wanted to switch to Czech or on occasion, like, hey, do you want to try check for 10 minutes? That it was natural, it was fluid, wasn't perfect, and that was perfectly okay that we were just sitting at a cafe chatting and that was just a nice, relaxed thing. Sam, it's a nice memory to have for them that they said, all right, keep studying and come back in a couple of years. So that sort of connection and appreciation that we know from English speakers when somebody else has really taken a lot of time for that, to repay that in kind, it was a great surprise. And I got a couple of good laughs out of them because they said, well, you still can't say your name properly, but at least we can understand you. It's like, yeah, I think I said it once, maybe twice correctly. And that was back in 2008. Oh, well, maybe I'll, you know, 14 years from now, I'll get it again. I want to turn back to some of our previous discussion on methods and systems. And one of the methods that you used was very similar to something that I did when I was working in an office full-time, and that was utilizing my lunch hour as my language study time. And I know you use this with great 
results during your challenge. So can you talk about why you picked that time and kind of your thinking behind this and then also the results of doing it? Yeah. And primarily it was just a break. Um, Throughout the challenge, I was managing two projects and then I had an opportunity to do an exam that in the month of July was just hectic and mayhem. But the lunch hour allowed me to do a couple of things. I would physically leave the space and go into another room that I've read somewhere that if you actually go through a door and enter a new space, you're leaving things behind. So the attention residue from the previous task, it could be a very busy morning, but I'm going into some place that, yes, this is where I'm going to learn check that at the very least I blocked an hour. I didn't always use it, but it then became sort of an interregnum. It became an intermediary to say, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Leave the morning that's already done. That's water under the bridge. Take a little breather, enjoy things that, oh, you're doing something you enjoy having a nice lunch alongside learning. It made it all the better. And then it set up the afternoon as well that I'm not thinking about it through lunch. Being able to switch like that to something completely different helped kind of regulate emotions, whether it's a busy day, whether it's a lax day, but that sort of consistency and looking at those different components just made it easier. And it was the discovery that, oh, this is a good time for me, that it was trial and error, right? You know, switching from the afternoon that, oh, let me try it here, made it all much better. And I was able to block and say, hey, this is my lunch hour. And thankfully, my employer is pretty good, like, do not schedule meetings in lunch hours. So why not take advantage? And then it's done, all the better. Something you were saying before is um, your friends were saying, you know, come back to us in a few years and we'll we'll hear how you sound then. How do you mix this idea of uh, having intensive projects like in the challenge and maintaining this long-term uh, improvement that you will potentially in years be able to do things like very casually say your name and have very fluent conversations? How do you mix the, the two extremes? I think it's just part of an effort of continual assessment, right? You know, our goals can change from the start of the year to, you know, October 1st, right? The year is three-fourths of the way over. Do I want to be doing the same things as January 1st? Um, the intensive goal was nice because, as you well know, the Fluent Three Months Challenge is, by definition, designed to be smart goals. Specific, it's measurable, it's actionable, results-oriented, and time-sensitive. So it allows you to m- make a lot of gains very quickly and then reassess, do I want to keep going? Do I need a break? Same for that sort of list of six. Um, I forget where that came from, but oh, maybe I need to put it off for a little while. During the challenge, I found a lot came back very quickly because a lot of it was being reactivated that if it was a new language, I may try to just you know solidify a lot of those things. That when I went over, the proof was in the pudding, talking to my friends, talking to uh, folks from another city I'd never met in uh town about two hours west of Prague called Carlo Vivari that I promised my tutor he's from there. So he's like, you have to go to Vari and just walking around, intermingling for the tourists, but getting a couple blocks away and then, oh, having a conversation, right? So knowing that you can get back there allows you to say, hey, this is my signpost is where I can start from, kind of like a safe point in a video game, right? That's good. Do I want to do that for the next three months? Not quite sure. But at the very least, I'm asking myself the question versus saying it's done, therefore it's over, I'm not going to do it again. It's in the mix. Doesn't mean it has to be in the mix. And that's a distinction that helps me. Maybe something changes in October or November and I pick it up again, come back in a couple of years, that the most important thing, it's for me. It's not for anybody else. Czech is a unique language. It is not necessarily a worldwide useful language. It only has about 10 million speakers. But 
I enjoy it. And if I'm going to do the things I enjoy, why not? And if I can continue with the tutor like once a week to either maintain or try new areas, from there, I'll find the next steps. I was joking with friends before I went over to uh, Czech Republic is, what are your plans? Like, I don't have them. They're going to tell me. I think the future will reveal itself, but I have to put the action in place to do that all the easier. And, you know, in a couple of years, I'll either be the same or I'll be better. Just depends on what else is going on. We often talk about how there's never really a right time to learn a language. You just kind of have to do it and make your life fit around it in a way. Um, And of course, it's easier said than done. And during your challenge, you both had COVID and you had a major exam that you were preparing for, studying for, and taking. So how did you keep those things from derailing your studies and totally throwing you off track? Um, COVID, fortunately, it wasn't you know, a very serious case, but more, um, more objectively, it was the trade-offs, right? It was saying, I'm going to take this exam that historically I would just keep piling things on and eventually burn out. That said, you're going to take this exam, be know thyself, be honest with yourself about how much time this is going to take, and then add 20%. Give yourself grace, give yourself buffer. And so from that, okay, there's only 24 hours in a day, you start doing math backwards, say, you know, there's this thing that you want to do, you want to keep on top of, you know, some pop culture, whether it's TV shows that have just come out, say, all that will be there later, right? The time will pass anyway, these two things are front and center, they are temporary. And so let them be temporary, let them work themselves through because the other things are going to be there on the other side. So it was as simple as writing a list like I will do X, Y, Z, I will do A, B, C, but I will also not do C, D, and E. I will not do um, D, E, and F, and I'm mixing my algebra there, unfortunately, but having that sort of in front of me on a computer, right? That there's a little notepad to say, this is your focus for the day, these are the six, just as important on the other side, what you're not doing, so long as you're not missing any family or other commitments, it allows things to play out naturally so that you're not trying to do everything all at once in so much that if I'm not trying to do everything all at once, I can plan it better and maintain a commitment, at least for this, that now that the 90 days are up, I'm revisiting a lot of those things. I really like this idea of a buffer and it's something that I've started implementing myself and I try to plan out my day. I was add this extra wiggle room because I never know if, uh, how far it's going to go. And I'm also very bad at estimating how long tasks will take. So that buffer zone allows for my bad estimation. How did you discover what your buffer zone should be uh, so that you know you can add it consistently to your calendar? I think it's truthfully almost a daily thing, right? You know, how much energy I have when I wake up, but knowing that, oh, I do this in project management, right? you know, add 10% of time, right? Because that gives me the leeway if something goes bad, right? There are the known knowns, there are the known unknowns, there are the unknown knowns and the unknown unknowns. And not that you're going to be perfect every single time, but if I'm trying to absolutely cram my calendar because it looks pretty, then I run into trouble, right? You know, here's my lunch hour and I'm going to put out of office for one to one thirty. Maybe there were times I needed that for work and then I did something later, but it's that sort of assess in the moment, find that triage point. If it's 10 to 20%, that seems pretty safe, right? Just try it. See if it worked. It wasn't a, okay, I'm going to give myself exactly 30 minutes. It's that fluidity that really kind of evolved throughout the challenge to say, I remember early on someone at work said, if we're not giving ourselves grace during the pandemic, then what the heck are we doing, right? And so something along those lines that 
we know all the steps that if everything was perfect around us, then we can do it. We see the straight path. Everything tries to derail us. If we know that things are going to be derailed, then if it's perfect, it takes eight hours, give yourself 12, right? Because then you can do both and understand that life can and does get in the way, but then you're not discouraged when it does because you already thought through that my client is very fond of saying, we always need to think the problem through. And that's not just what I want to do and where I want to go, but the journey to get there, knowing it will never be perfect. Success is not a straight line. All those adages really sort of add up to say 10 to 20% works for me, maybe 5% for somebody else. But at the least, it's rarely that everything sequences perfectly. And when it happens, you enjoy those days. And the other 99% of days, okay, that's what I got to figure out. I was hoping you were going to mention that you were a project manager because my next question for you is related to that. And that is, have you found like what skills that you've learned as a project manager have you found to be useful in your language learning aside from buffer time? Buffer time for sure. Also knowing when uh, things do need to be dropped, right? There is something urgent versus, hey, I'm feeling really good today. I can make progress that when I manage my projects, I have some general time sort of guidelines. There may be days where, hey, I'm working 10 hours on two different projects. That's something that takes a lot out of me, right? Maybe my language goes to the next day. Maybe it's, okay, we got through a big presentation yesterday. I can spend a little time in the afternoon doing some of these components and still hit my commitments. So I think it's sort of understanding from a project management perspective that things can and do change from a daily basis, weekly basis, a monthly basis, but the skills to, oh, here's an opportunity. Let me take advantage of it versus here's a problem upcoming. How do I deal with it? It's two sides of the same coin. And again, you're navigating, you're trying to find those different components that you remind yourself, hey, I learned English. I just didn't think about it when I was growing up. I can learn another language. I can do this skill. The nice thing about learning a language, because you've already learned one, even if you don't know the rules, it's doable. You just have to find what works versus going into a new project where you got to figure out all the context, all the constraints, anything and everything to those effects, right? That's where it gets a little bit scary because it truly is new. Languages is just a new medium, but it's not new components. And so, oh, I've done this project before, right? What lessons can I learn from others? So it's not just the project itself, but the pieces around it. And bringing that to bear for a language project is, you know, the official definition for Project Management Institute is a project is a temporary endeavor as a start and an end. Can't think of no better way to describe the challenge. I'm very interested to hear how your perspective from project management combined with the challenge, how you would implement this if you were starting over, your mind was wiped of all check, or like in general, like how, how what advice would you give to other people? I think what you said already is very important is to embrace the idea that change will happen and to be okay with this, that things can never go perfectly according to the plan. But what other aspects of your project management do you think you would implement and advise others to when they're taking on something like the challenge? I can be the smartest person in the world and know every single aspect of the project and continue to learn for that. And I will burn out. The better option is to utilize those around you, whether it's a community, there are people that are smarter than you that can teach you faster, you gain efficiencies, right? That for my projects, I manage a lot of folks with a lot of very deep technical knowledge. And sometimes they talk to me and I don't understand half of what they're saying. But if I can translate what they're saying into my client and say, this is what this person brings to the table, to bring that to language learning, it's, oh, I need somebody that 
I'm not going to start with a grammar book. I need to figure out what I'm trying to do first and foremost. What is the aim of the project, right? What am I trying to do when I speak the language? Do I need it for work? Do I need it for business? Do I, you know, want to just connect with people on the ground? If the goal is to connect with people on the ground, why am I reading a book, right? I need to figure out how to connect with people that way. So the onset is different because it's different from the traditional norms of go to school, take a class, right? And I hear my friends say, I got to go take a class and I just want to, you know, grab them by the shoulders and say, talk to somebody. <laughs> it's available. And so with that, those pieces come together in such a way to say, you know, if everything was wiped, where am I starting? Where do I want to go at the end point to get there? These are the things I need to do. I need to build upon a team because it does take a village. I just need to remind myself that forever, however smart I am in something or, you know, not as smart in something else, somebody can else somebody can make that life better and it becomes a trade component where, oh, I can teach you how to do X, Y, Z, right? You teach me this and then we both get where we're going faster. Um, I forget the proverb, like if you want to go, um, go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So as a fellow project manager, one of the things that I know we do at the end of any project is do a retro to kind of evaluate how the project went, what could be better, um, what things went well, and so on. So what is your personal retro for your time in the challenge? Glibly, don't take an additional exam, right? It was an opportunity, but it was a very intensive one. Um, more seriously, I would think, you know, for the days you were successful, why they were successful. It's because you gave time for something to happen, right? And I, you know, put a corollary for fitness that for those that are getting into fitness from a long layover, there's going to be a day where it feels great. That's not on day one. That's not on day two, but you have to do day one, day two, day three. That I think my biggest retro is just emphasizing something that I knew previously, but bring it to bear. I've heard it described in different ways, something like the rule of thirds or, you know, every third day where they're going to be 33% of your days that are fantastic, 33% of your days that are average, and 33% that absolutely are just blah. They're not good. But you can't stop in the blah days, right? And that's where I got derailed previously. There's no guarantee after a blah day, it's going to be a great day. You could have six blah days in a row, then you could have six great days in a row two weeks from now. So the retrospective was pretty simple that when it got a little busy when it got you know a little out of hand truthfully my language did drop for a little bit but i did make sure you know if you don't see this one through then you're going to regret it the time's going to pass and you can get closer just pick it up back up for 10 minutes then it became 20 then it became 30 and you got back into rhythm that that was the biggest retrospective for me to say you found a way to find your way through right and I will use the term, if you're going through hell, just keep going. So you can get to the other side for that. Now to say, okay, you can set this up different. You can add even you know, these better buffer times. You can schedule these things out and have that flexibility. Now it's on your calendar, right? When something is there on my calendar, whether it's this or something else, oh, I work around that versus trying to fit it in. The farther out I can think through these things, the more choices it gives me and the more flexibility um, as I look back as a means to look forward. How is your future uh, projects of improving your check going to look in comparison to the level of intensity? Because obviously it's a very different kind of project when that project is so central, like the challenges, compared to times afterwards where maybe you'll only do it for a few hours a week 
or are you going to try and to maintain some level of consistent uh, like intensity moving forward? Truthfully, it's a little bit of both. You know, I have lessons booked with my tutor, right, to maintain that. I've been fortunate enough to have a good one trying a few different ones. And uh, my tutor and I just, we have the same vibe. He sends me some interesting things that if I don't have the consistency, it will fall apart. But if I don't have the variety, it's not going to go anywhere. So there are certain aspects of Czech culture, whether it is um, a famous painter named Alphonse Mucha, who I really like, whether it is Czech writers to be able to say, oh, you know, do you want to be able to understand what they're going for a little bit more? That the aim was to connect with Czech people, right? There are people that go over there and talking to some of my Czech friends, going down to a restaurant and ordering, they say, you do that better than some people have been there for 25 years. And it's simple. It's straightforward. So what is that sort of next reachable challenge? So I'm not overreaching. I'm not trying to run a marathon before I run a 5K that I don't know that answer truthfully, but I do know that the interest remains strong and ask them, ask, you know, what would be interesting? What do you guys want to show off about your culture? Um, you know, whether good or bad, you know, the Czech history is interesting to me. A lot of Czechoslovakia and then Czech Republic, now Czechia, all the things that are going on now. So there's always something you can find, but you have to just go look around for it. You're not trying to find something perfect. You're trying to find something interesting that when you find something interesting, that to me is where personally it becomes more sustainable. And yeah, if I sustain it, all the better. So one of the questions that we like to ask every guest, given that this is the language hacking podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? I thought about this one and I like to think of it like Indiana Jones actually physically hacking through a jungle, right? You're sort of dropped into an environment where you can get tangled in the weeds very, very quickly. But if you think through an Indiana Jones movie that he has ups and he has downs, he has times where he's in trouble and he needs to find his way out of it. That, you know, if anybody thinks that language learning is going to be perfect and sunny all the time, right? They will learn very quickly. That's not the case. And so when you're hacking your way through that, you may try to find the perfect way, you know, the prim and proper, whether it's a British expedition, like leading off to the, this is the safe trail, Indiana Jones finds a way, right? He sort of hacks his way through, but he always also tries to find the people around him to help and, you know, get to where he's going. So if it's a jungle out there, use the literal definition of hacking in that sense to find your way through that it doesn't have to be perfect, but you find a path and you can see where you come from, that it helps get you out of the weeds to know that you have that strength of mentality the same. Um, to just work your way through the language for the pitfalls as they were. Very well put. I, I like that literal way of uh, applying hacking because, uh, you know, everyone likes to feel like Indiana Jones. So very well said. Yeah, this, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Greg, for sharing your perspective, especially very interesting, the project management uh, overlap with language learning. I think that's going to be uh, it's going to inspire a lot of people. So thank you very much for joining us for that. Absolutely. And if I can just comment that you don't have to be a project manager, everybody in their day-to-day life manages projects, right? Whether it's your kids, whether it's something else that, you know, we call them projects from a more technical, more defined sense. But the more that I say what I'm doing, it's like, oh yeah, this is what I do here. I just don't call it a project, right? We do projects all the time, you know, to bring some terms to bear may unlock some things for some folks. It's been helpful for me said a different way to somebody else, maybe just as helpful, all the, all the easier. I'm glad that the information is out there from my perspective. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if it is initially a project, the goal is that ultimately it just becomes a natural part of your life. And we never have, like, we never have projects 
that used to be uh, like whenever projects in our day to day life for things that used to be so essential, like, you know, driving used to be a project. Now it just happens naturally. And that's ultimately with language learning. It can be a project and then it can just become a natural part of your life. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I will wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. Plenty of great takeaways related to the project management side. But what jumped out to me the most was uh, his suggestion of how phones kind of uh, play their role in our lives, because it's very easy to uh, talk badly about them, that they're just a a pure form of distraction. But uh, I like that he said you can redefine that norm and you can use your phone as a way of helping conversations flow. And it's kind of reminded me that I like I'm in Brazil right now. And as I'm getting to know people, I might show them stuff on my phone. And it's making me think that maybe I should actually do that more intentionally and potentially like download like videos and photos that I know I want to talk about and save them to my gallery or star them so I can pull them out very quickly. And that'll help my conversations flow a lot faster Rather than think, you know, I'm in a conversation, the last thing I want to do is take out my phone. I could potentially find a middle ground that there are ways the phone itself is not just going to impede the conversation, but to give inspiration for fun ways the conversation can move forward. So that was my big takeaway for sure. What was yours? I would have to say that mine was the comment he made about changing spaces when he's getting ready to study a language. He goes into another room and I've heard uh, a couple of people talk about this in the past, but it's not really something that I've thought about really trying until I heard the way Greg explained it. And it's true. I find that if I stay in the same space that I'm doing other tasks, it's easy to keep doing those other tasks and not make that shift to language. Or if I do make that shift to language, I'm probably not as focused as I would be if I had that physical reset. Because it's not just like the space that's different. It's like the very act of stopping what you're doing, getting up and moving is going to make your brain go, okay, I'm shifting at this point. Like something new is about to happen. And that new thing in this case is language learning. So that's the biggest takeaway for me this week, just because it's something that I haven't been doing. And I think I could definitely benefit from doing. Um, And it's not even necessarily like, okay, so like right now, this is my workspace. And this is where I do other things, but maybe even like switching where you normally do things. Um, like your study space, like even if you normally study in a certain area just for this week, you know, go study somewhere else, like go study outside, go to a park and study, go to a cafe and study, um, go sit in your kid's bedroom when they're not there and study. Um, just, you know, even if you do have a dedicated study space, just try switching it up because, um, this is also something that you and I have talked about on past episodes. Our brains create associations with where we're learning and the state that we're learning in among with among other things. So if you're always studying in the same place, you're actually limiting yourself because a lot of what you've learned are attached to that physical space. And in order to recall it, you have to be in that or a very similar physical space in order to re- have the same sort of recollection. So just by changing where you're studying is actually going to benefit you in a lot of different ways, not just for focus and switching modes. So that was it for me. 
All right. So once again, to wrap up, uh, in this podcast, we featured one of our Fluent in Three Months Challenge participants. And if you too would like to have a 15-minute conversation in your new language, like Greg did with Czech, you can learn more at languagehacking.com slash challenge. And until the next time, happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.